Music is a universal language. And just as every note has a different vibration, every human being vibrates differently. Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the only podcast, the only classical music podcast with the nerve, Scott. Am I lying? We're the, the only ones with the nerve to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I can't argue. <laughs> um, this is the uh, episode about violinist Louis Farrakhan. So, you know, what, what that means for you, first and foremost, we are exploring a story in classical music that has not often been explored. When I found out um, that he played violin, when I came across this video on YouTube, I was shocked that I had no idea. Um, This is Triloquy, you know, the true and real. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like it's it's a a story um, and a topic that needs to be explored. So um, that's what we're doing today. So I understand that that's, you know, rough. for a lot of people, and and I get it. I've spent a lot of time over these past couple weeks reading everything I can, watching every video interview I can, and you know, I I, I think that this is just something that um, the classical music world deserves to know about. And 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 as I said, we're the only ones with the nerve. Who else? Who else, Scott? Okay, so can you uh, for. Uh, folks like me who have uh, heard the name and don't have much background on him, uh, only that it's been largely negative. Um, wh- why is this something that hasn't been uh, approached before? Because of um, how seemingly uh, uh, so-called controversial uh, the Honorable Louis uh, Farrakhan is. You know, just um, as as uh, you'll hear in uh, one of the interviews um, that I uh, uh, put together for this for this opus. Um, you know, his politics, the way um, he views uh, religion. Um, he's been called anti-Semitic, uh, homophobic. You know, there are things that I would agree would fall in some of those lines. But uh, one of the things we're going to just explore in this opus is, you know, what that means, what relationship does that have with the piece of music um, he performed, uh, the relationship we should have with the recording, what that means for other musicians and performers mm-hmm. and uh, their legacy, cancel culture, you know, just that that whole thing. So I just wanted to get that out um, uh, in the front that this is what this episode this opus is about so okay yeah um uh before we get into movement one i just wanted to uh give a, a quick shout out to uh craig who's listening from nashville we're gonna uh throw an accidental <laughs> your way here <laughs> movement one um i want to shout out evan clark who is uh, officially a member of the team scott how about you tell the folks what evan is doing Evan Clark is the guy who takes all of the recording that Garrett and I do after I've put all the sound effects and the music clips and gotten everything lined up. Evan's the one that makes it sound nice. Yeah, so thank you so much, Evan. Um, 
I, I wish that, you know, I could be paying Evan, um, but uh, you can learn a little bit more about him on our uh, on the Triloquy website. He's getting a growler per episode from me. He's getting homebrew. Oh, okay. Well, good. I'm glad someone's paying him. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we had a social media person. If you want to, if, if you're black, I think the next person that we add to the team needs to be black. I mean, we need to keep it, you know, diverse, um, for goodness sake. Uh, if you want to uh, do social media... Um, and you're hearing this right we'll, now, reach out to we'll me. Let's let talk you. about something. <laughs> we'll let you. No, I, maybe there could be something that could be uh, worked out, but we'll see. So, uh, yeah, shout out to Evan. Thank you for everything you're doing. Uh, shout out to uh, Amanda Cook. I care if you listen. Um, one of the interviews that we're uh, offering today, and also a huge shout out to Caroline Diva Is As Diva Does Jones, who I talked to as well. I just love the nickname. <laughs> it's a way of life as well, as she would tell you. <laughs> All right, let's get into a movement one. All right, checking accidental. So uh, a big fat natural to uh, start off uh, these accidentals for uh, this week. Um for our uh, roots conversation, <laughs> right? Apparently, we kind of did a shitty job of. Well, I mean, and and as I admitted, you know, roots is a whole genre uh, that is new to me. It's it's a sound that is uh, peripheral to the blues I'm used to. But um, as uh, Craig, who listens from Nashville, shout out to him, uh, so kindly pointed out, it is a very definable uh, genre uh, with a huge history to it. Yeah, he said that he cringed when he heard that. <laughs> and just let me say this. Um, keep listening because there's far more <laughs> there's far better stuff to cringe over than uh, what you heard there on the but I really, conversation but, but, but I really did appreciate um, the feedback you know um, I, I've gone through and, and listened to a few more things uh, I wanted to just say a few names that he threw our way um, he, he thinks talking about Charlie Pride would be great mm. uh, for, for this podcast in the future. And also Mickey Guyton, if I'm saying that um, that name correctly. I'm not familiar I hope with so. It. But, um, uh, and uh, we, we may even uh, invite Craig uh, onto the show because he does um, his own thing down in Nashville. Um, it sounds like at the intersection of uh, roots and, and country and blues and these different conversations. So um, just wanted to shout out, Craig. Thank you so much for uh, listening and pointing us in the a, a better direction because our roots uh, our roots break down. Yeah, you know, actually, uh, speaking of Evan, while he was mixing this, he sent me a text. I could tell where he was mixing it. He got okay. to the roots section because he texted me, DeFord Bailey. So go check out DeFord Bailey. And the more I think about it, maybe a, like a current uh, roots artist that I've, I've actually seen play is Corey Glover. Okay. So maybe check him out too. Yeah. Shout out to all these roots artists. All right. Um, that, that's a big natural for me. Do, do you have an, uh, uh, an accidental? No, I'm going to hold on to it because we got a lot to get through today. Okay. So, um, I'm just going to say now, you know, like I do have to put a flat, you know, just something that's kind of damp in the mood. There have been actually now I've recently learned um, a couple um, uh, deaths uh, in music today. Um, the, the one I heard about earlier uh, was the passing of Ennio Morricone, who mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll uh, bring up here in a second. But I want to um, put a big fat sharp next to, you know, my discovery of uh, Louis Farrakhan being a violinist. So somehow I came across this video um, and after a bit of research, um, I found out that uh, this was uh, coordinated with um, an orchestra in Chicago. They created a documentary around it and, you know, how... Um, 
the uh, despite the fact that he's been, you know, accused of anti-Semitism and has said, you know, anti-Semitist uh, anti things, you know, he is uh, this hidden talent of his that he'd never really talked about being able to play the violin. He wanted to bring it back with a piece of music by a Jewish composer, you know, his teacher who taught him for two years in preparation uh, for the concert uh, um, is a Jewish woman. And it was seen by many as this just united thing. But because of, you know, what his reputation is, uh, it's been hard for a lot of people to, uh, you know, stomach who he is. And I think that uh, plays a big role in this part of uh, music history, music present, classical music uh, just isn't something that uh, we, we know about. Now, you said you weren't really familiar with him. No, no. Um, I remember I've heard his name. But like when we were talking earlier uh, in school, things were broken out in units, you know, so we had, you know, maybe two, three weeks where we would spend on, yeah. you know, here's indigenous history, here's some black history, here's uh, Hispanic. And it, it, and it just seemed like that it, it just was lopped off after that, you know, you didn't, you were now we're on to the next thing. And the names that I remember, obviously, were Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Marcus Garvey. Those were the, those were the ones that we covered. And then anytime Farrakhan's name did come up, there was always somebody around to say something negative. Right, right. And just and, and because you're not uh, so familiar, you know, I, I can just, um, you know, frame it this way. I've, I've had to do a lot of Farrakhan reading. Um, you know, he tells a story about being a little kid and... Um, you know, being used to seeing images of white Jesus and and and, right. and this other thing just around the house and just everywhere, uh, he visits his uncle um, in uh, in New York and uh, sees a black man's picture on the wall and uh, asks his uncle, who is that? Uh, well, it was a picture of Marcus Garvey. And this is a young Farrakhan, a child Farrakhan, um, asking his uncle about Marcus Garvey and learning and like realizing this is like, you know, the man I want to be around. You know, I want to, you know, work on black liberation. I want us to be free too. Mm -hmm. And of course, his uncle uh, broke his heart by telling him that Marcus Garvey had passed, but um, was somehow connected um, to uh, the local mosque. And that's where he met uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and became one of his um, uh, protégés. And now, you know, the Honorable Louis Farrakhan is is seen as, you know, this, this great minister um, for the uh, Nation of Islam. So, you know, it, a, a lot of his work, all of his work, I'm sure he would say, is rooted in, um, in black freedom and black liberation. But, you know, when you really center blackness in that way and talk about economics, talk about um, a, 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 a set of reparations, you know, and do so unapologetically, you're going to, you know, bruise a couple feelings along the way, I'm sure, right? You know, sure. so I think a lot of it has to do with that. And I, I don't want to spend much time at all just, you know, trying to uh, cover my tracks. Um, as I said uh, in, in the intro, um it's a conversation uh, that I think classical music deserves, and we're here to uh, deliver it because obviously the other people would not, other uh, and uh, and we would know about it, right? This would be more of a thing. I, I think so. Anyway. Okay, yeah, because we talked a little bit about how this just shows some of the gaping holes in education. It just up and I get in my feelings upset about it because this is just something we should know. 
And, sure. I, and for me to just happen to stumble upon this and for me to share it on Facebook and to see so many other people who had no idea. Okay, so there's loads of clips from Donahue, right? Mm-hmm. Now, would you... That's my era. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was 20 years old when that was on. Now, I don't think that that would make it over broadcast air, maybe cable today, yeah. but not over the air, just free TV. Probably not. Do you think that for somebody who doesn't know anything about him, is that a place to start? Um, It could be. I mean, that's where you, you get to hear him in his words. I definitely... Uh, I think it would be easy to get lost in the sauce if you like went for a sermons or something. Um, if you get to hear him just talk about the world, um, it's great to get that perspective. But I'll tell you, um, as it applies to what we're talking about, you know, I'm not here advertising for the Nation of Islam. You know, start with a documentary. There's a documentary called For the Love of Music, and it's about exactly what we're exploring here. You know, his perspective in this documentary is showing us um, his journey back to music and mm. um, to this performance in Chicago, which was uh, precipitated uh, by, uh, is that, did I say that word right, precipitated? It, it came after a concert in North Carolina, which ended up serving as the first Gateways uh, music uh festival performance. Mm. So um, so uh, we're going to explore that, as I mentioned in the intro again, with Amanda Cook from I Care If You Listen. Um, and then we have, I was so lucky to get um, the words of uh, Caroline Jones, who was at the performance, performed with Farrakhan uh, at the concert uh, in North Carolina and at that first Gateways Festival. So uh, you'll get to hear uh, about the formation of a, uh, a very important uh, black classical music institution and... Um, uh, a, a historic, you know, figure in this so-called classical music who we're just not allowed to learn about because of uh, a controversial uh, perspective that folks have on them. You've already gotten pushback, though, before this even drops. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mentioned Farrakhan just in passing, I think, as I mentioned, uh, we were talking about before on the Kwanzaa opus. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and, and very friendly, you know, uh, pushback. But, you know, just this idea will, you know, just make sure you know that he said this or he represents that. So, um, yeah, um, f- folks who know, know. Folks who are familiar with his controversies, you know, know. And folks who, you know, and my, my opinion is that folks who have taken the time to, you know, dig in, uh, you know, have been offered a different perspective. I've been offered one, and I hope uh, we can offer that today. But, you know, let, let's not spend too much time, you know, stirring the soup here. Um, uh, before we get into um, the conversation uh, with Amanda, um, I just wanted to note Ennio Morricone. And, mm-hmm. you know, the older we get, you know, the more of these names that we know whose, you know, music is sort of alive to us because we know they're alive. You know, it just it's sort of like, wow, that... Um, that person is gone. That was part of the part of the soundtrack of my early youth, staying up and watching spaghetti westerns yeah. after hours with my brothers. What a treat, you know. And he wrote so many of the soundtracks for all those. You know, Clint Eastwood probably owes a, a his sure. the beginning of his career to the music that Morricone was writing. Now, you know, folks who don't know his name, you know, just think of. Um, all of those uh, westerns, and most famously, a theme that came up in a in a little article that you read today, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, I think that it's kind of a nice coincidence that 
in the interview with Amanda, she brings up Judd Greenstein because I found it through his Twitter feed, this story. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Washington Post, in their announcement of Morricone's passing, he says, the Italian composer who wrote, <laughs> the theme, there you go, to the good, bad, and the ugly. Now, you have to see that they wrote out, ah, e, ah, e, ah, e, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so <laughs> Judd's response was, come on, no. He asked, the, he asked composers, would you represent your entire output in one absurdly verbalized phrase of your most well-known theme? I guess in my case, it would be... <laughs> so let's break that down. So let's break that down. Let's make sure we're not playing too much inside baseball. So basically, what he's saying is... In this whole grand catalog, you're choosing this one little thing and trivializing it down to automatopoeia, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I think that's a little tone deaf. Um, I don't know. This is not the triloquy, but, um, you know, his his uh, his output for me, um, you know, became real through The Hateful Eight. Is that a movie that, you, uh, yeah. that you've seen? Brilliant. So I saw it uh, at the theaters, you know. Actually, I-, I was almost late to a rehearsal, I think a Nutcracker rehearsal, because uh, the movie was a little longer than I thought it was. Um, and just listening to that um, opening music, um, I was like, whoa, what is it? You know, that was one of the first times I was really drawn in by the music that opened up a movie. and you know, just, You can hear when they know what they're doing. And and it's just so menacing and, and yeah. evil and you know big use of the um, of the bassoon. So uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll uh, listen to a little bit of that as we transition uh, into the conversation with Amanda Cook. But you know, uh, rest in peace to Ennio Morricone. What a what a phenomenal career um, and what an impactful one. You know, it's it's important to note. I would say that everyone would know that so-called ah yeah yeah theme. You know? I didn't know how else to say it. And and Judd says. <laughs> you know, don't put what I just sung from his catalog in his obit or he would haunt your ass. But uh, <laughs> Judd, go ahead, because I think that's his, I think that's hilarious. Yeah, but but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll put a link uh, in the description. Uh, go look up a little bit of his music uh, beyond the I, 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 and, <laughs> and and just appreciate, you know, what he did for all of us, what he did for film music. You know, Quincy Jones himself uh, today tweeted uh, about his admiration for um for uh, Ennio Morricone. So, yeah, uh, shout out to him. Rest in peace to him. Uh, warm thoughts to his family. Here's a little bit of uh, his score uh, from The Hateful Eight to take us into our conversation with Amanda Cook. So Amanda, I'm sure you get this question um, a lot, but uh, and I try to avoid common questions as much as I can. But this is one that I just I, I couldn't help myself with. So when I think about, I care if you listen. Um, who is doing the listening and who's doing the talking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question that we're trying to learn a more detailed answer to more and more every day. We're trying to learn more about our audience in particular. So. We have what Google Analytics will tell us, um, which is a very binary way of looking at gender and some demographic, other demographics, location. Um, but one interesting thing that I just learned is 
when I took over as editor in chief about three years ago, we had a pretty large disparity between male and female readers. Again, talking about gender in a binary way, because that's what Google Analytics will tell us. But uh, we had about 60% male readership and 40% female readership. And we have just recently within the past couple of months, closed that gap and flipped it to where we have a slightly higher female readership than male readership. So was that surprising to to find? um, It was, but I think that it's a reaction to the content that we're publishing now. Mm. Um, We've seen a huge surge in our readership ever since we have started to focus more on historically underrepresented marginalized people in classical music And Garrett, I remember listening to you talk about the same sort of thing happening to you with your radio show. Um, I think you were talking at Sphinx about how as soon as you started intentionally programming these voices that are often left out of the conversation, how you saw your engagement really take off. And and we're really experiencing a lot of the same thing. Um, So just anecdotally, what we know about people who are reading and sharing our content is that it's very diverse in terms of who the people are in this ecosystem of contemporary music. It's composers, it's performers, it's arts administrators, publicists, orchestras, institutions, uh, people who are just curious about contemporary music, people who are students. Uh, We're seeing more and more in our referral stats that people are coming to us from their uh, universities, Blackboard, or whatever their online learning system is. Um, so that's great that we're being included on on syllabi. And then in terms in terms of who is doing the writing, we have a team of forty to fifty volunteer contributors. And right now, because we're operating on an all volunteer structure, we have a lot of people kept in a fairly slow rotation so that we're not asking too much of any one given person. But our writer team is um, coming from a lot of different backgrounds as well. We have composers and performers. We have music musicologists. We have music theorists. We have university professors. We have people who work for nonprofits. Um, so in terms of professionally, we have a, a fairly uh, diverse set of viewpoints. In terms of race, not so much, mostly because you know we're, we're operating on this volunteer structure and it takes a certain amount of privilege to be able to put in that volunteered time. So as we move forward, we're definitely looking for ways that we can financially support our writers, um, and then we can start to include more BIPOC voices on our team. Yeah, that that uh, the the volunteer nature of of so much of this work is something that I've started to uh, think about a lot when it comes to triloquy. I mean, uh, can, considering how hard up so many people are these days, you know, month six or seven of, of this coronavirus era, um, how how do you how do you move forward uh, when it comes to asking things of uh, your team, but understanding that it's only being done on a volunteer basis? It's tough. And especially in these past couple of months, I've had conversations with people on my team who have just been having a hard time being creative and getting stuff done. And I I mean, I think we all are kind of there to a certain extent where it's hard to keep up with the productivity. It's hard to keep producing things. And so we've just been moving a little bit slower. We've been trying to 
get things out with longer timelines and deadlines just to give people more time and space. So it takes a little bit more work on my part to just anticipate and try to give people more time. And we're just continuing to do the best we can with the resources that we have. Yep. Yep. I have a question for you that deals with something that Garrett and I are going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, the difference between canceling and calling out. Okay. Uh, calling out is different in that you've got a shot. Okay. Somebody has brought something to your attention and you have a chance to make some sort of change. So as I was looking at your website and noticing, like you said, you know, you have a, a lot of diversity as far as background, but as far as race is concerned, it looks pretty white. And I was wondering uh, as sometimes my position here on this podcast has been questioned, I'm curious if anybody has called you out on that. And if so, what was your response? Well, so there's, there's the content that we're covering and then the people who are producing the content. And okay. so I've, I've sort of had this question come up on both sides of mm. that. So when I took over as editor about three years ago, that's when I started really implementing this conscious effort to prioritize underrepresented and marginalized artists. And I heard some rumblings from some people that the perception was that we only cared about white feminism. And I was trying very hard to work against that, but it made me work even harder because if that's anyone's perception of the work that we're doing, then we need to listen to that and we need to do yeah. better. And, um, you know, it's, sometimes it doesn't matter that you're trying. It's just <laughs> the, the product that you're putting out is, is the product that you're putting out. So hearing that that was a perception to some people really kind of lit a fire under me to, to do better and to make sure that it's very, very clear who we're trying to promote on our platform. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the writer team, I mean, I think what's interesting to me is that a lot of people still don't realize that we're operating a hundred percent volunteer so once that conversation happens, then I think the makeup of our contributor team makes more sense. Yeah. Um, our contributor team is comprised of people who just voluntarily respond to our calls for contributors. It's people who self-elect and say, I have the time and the capacity to do this. Um, but moving forward, we're really looking at, I care if you listen long-term. And one of our top priorities is having the contributor team match the diversity of voices that we're covering in terms of our content and being able to engage more people in this conversation. It's not just about the people that we're writing about. It's the people who are writing the words too. Mm. And new music gathering just wrapped up. And I don't know if the two of you are involved in the new music gathering uh, circles, but there was a really great roundtable discussion panel on practicing anti-racism in contemporary music. And Anthony Green was one of the panelists. And I just love listening to everything he has to say. I learned so much from listening to him. 
And one of the main things he called out was just music criticism needs to do better. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago, even the two of you were talking about uh, that piece in the New York Times about Sheku and mm-hmm. that that headline. And it's like, you know, if you just have, if you have BIPOC voices in the room, then chances are you're not only not going to step in it like that, but <laughs> but you're also going to open yourself up to so many more new perspectives and stories. And so that's really where we're trying to get. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that's one of the things I really appreciate about I Care If You Listen is the um, d- diverse uh, backgrounds and perspectives that, um, that are represented, uh, including, you know, very graciously um, in, in an interview that featured me. And um, I actually, uh, Amanda, if you don't mind, wanted to turn around one of the questions that you asked me um, to you. So uh, the the question rose up, you know, how do I uh, justify foregrounding racial equity in a world where um, ageism is a thing, um, uh, ableism, you know, obviously uh, the the patriarchy? Um, You know, what about for you? What do you foreground and and how do you uh, justify doing that? Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head with your answer in that interview, which is that we have all of these identities intersecting, but talking about racial equity is talking about gender equity. Talking about racial equity is talking about where that intersects with ableism. And I think that in our field in particular, we have these very structurally racist and discriminatory practices. And that's the main thing that we really need to tackle. And so, yes, we have all of these other intersecting problems, but it's not like we're not talking about them by making racial equity our primary focus. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, these, you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, shifting uh, the, the type of content uh, that you did sort of uh, uh, precipitated a surge in, in readership um, with all of the conversations concerning race uh, being heightened these days. Um, I, I wonder if you've seen even more of a surge. I mean, we we, we certainly have. Yeah, we have. Um, over the past couple of months, we have had some of our best months of web traffic yet. Um, And that's largely due to a couple of particular articles. Right at the beginning of the COVID shutdown, we put together a list of resources for artists, uh, artist relief funds, different grants that people could apply for that we were continually updating throughout the month of March when we really saw all of these mass cancellations happening. So that brought a lot of people to our site. And also, Mary Kumjian wrote an absolutely beautiful essay called, uh, I'm, I might not get the title exactly right, but it was essentially, I'm a composer and I am choosing not to create original art right now. I'm choosing not to compose right now. And that saw a lot of traffic and I think gave people this sense of not only relief, but also permission to just take some time and process everything that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. So those have been some of the two big drivers of traffic to our site, which is great because I think it's a reflection of what we're trying to do, provide resources to people, and then also provide a platform for artists to be able to share what's happening with them in a way that they feel comfortable being able to provide a platform where people are 
comfortable being vulnerable. I mean, Mary's essay was deeply personal and I just feel incredibly, incredibly grateful that she trusted us with her words and her thoughts on this. But we're also seeing that we have new audiences for older content that we've put out, especially. Same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. So, um, as some institutions are now scrambling to try to say, oh, well, we care about black people and we're, <laughs> you know, and putting out all these statements that don't mean anything, um, not to like kind of pat ourselves on the back, but like we've kind of been able to pull out the receipts a little bit and show that we've been doing this work. Um, and so some of our past essays in particular, Alex Blake, who is the founder of Tonality, which is a excellent choir out in LA. If you don't know them, you should definitely check them out. But he wrote this amazing essay for us on uh, social justice programming and how it's not enough to just draw attention to an issue through music, but you have to give people ways to step out into their community and do the work. Um, so that one's been really popular and um, yeah, so I mean, I mean, it's great that we're we're finding new audiences. And on one hand, um, I guess you can kind of think of it as you know, like, see, we've been doing this work, and you haven't been paying attention. But on the other hand, you can't you can't be too angry at people for being late to the party. If they arrive eventually, then you know, we're gonna Good welcome point. them. If they want to do the work, then you know, we'll bring them on board. Yeah, I, I've I've been wrestling with that idea uh, for weeks now because, you know, like I care if you listen, you know, Triloquy has been engaging these conversations and it's sort of complicated, um, you know, when I, at, at least for me, when I think about, well, I've been here all this time. Do I need to show, uh, do I need to spend that energy being frustrated or do I need to spend that energy moving forward or, exactly. or, or exploring different things? Um, so, uh, Amanda, you happen to be coming to us uh, this week when uh, Scott and I have something um, particularly, um, I hate I hate calling conversations uncomfortable, but uh, it, it will it will certainly be uncomfortable for many. So um, the uh, uh, video footage of uh, Louis Farrakhan uh, performing uh, the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto has has reemerged, and you know after me doing all sorts of uh, uh, research um, about that performance, you know I learned some of the uh, connections that I have to it. You know his warm up performance um, uh, uh, for the performance that's on the uh, on the internet on YouTube you know, being the first Gateways Music Festival performance, you know, which is a festival uh, for folks who don't know, uh, to this day celebrates the achievement of, of Black people and members of the African diaspora um, in classical music, so-called classical music, as I've been um, saying for a while. Um, and the, and of course, you know, with Louis Farrakhan being such a controversial figure, it, it brings up, you know, the conversation, uh, as, as Scott mentioned before, of, of canceling, of, you know, who gets to sit on this pedestal of uh, great musicianship and and who uh, that doesn't um, apply to. Uh, but before I, I jumped into that, uh, before we jump into that conversation, Amanda, I just kind of wanted to know um, your relationship with uh, Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto. I know it. I care if you listen. The focus um, is mostly on new music, but I mean, sh surely uh, this really old piece of music has has uh, impacted your your career to an extent. Yeah, I mean. I'm mostly involved in contemporary music now, but I have three degrees in flute performance. I have, you know, I, I was on that very traditional music education track. I'm sure your so. Daphne sounds beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, so I mean, like, it, it's a piece that comes up. I can't say that it has any particular meaning to me, but it's just kind of one of those pieces that you you get to know if you're in music school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Scott, you uh, you were no music student, but um, surely this is a piece of music that you have a lot of experience pressing play on, right? <laughs> Absolutely, especially that first movement. And you know, he said that when he was writing that, that that melody was running through his head for six years. Wow. Wow. You know, so imagine having that earworm going and <laughs> yeah, for six years. Wow. Yeah. And, and you know, when I think about the piece of music, um, you know, not, not to tell too long of a story, but um, I remember the first time going to uh, one of the music, one of the, um, what do you call the museums in DC? The, uh, the, uh, oh, the, the blank for, natural history or the, you know, uh, Smithsonian, visiting the Smithsonian uh, museums. Uh, and I went into the, uh, the one for, uh, one of the ones for visual art. Um, and I was exposed to the, uh, the paintings of Degas. And um, I remember this one painting of a ballerina, like rubbing her sore feet, you know, still in this beautiful costume. And, you know, when I hear the opening uh, moments of the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, I think of that. I think of the beauty of this so-called classical music, but the costs and, and the price that folks, uh, composers, performers, uh, advocates have had to pay for it over the years. So, you know, it, it's just an invaluable uh, composition, um, in my opinion. But again, when we talk about uh, Louis Farrakhan's performance of it, you know, uh, folks begin to question um, maybe not the uh, the value of that piece of music, but the value of the performance. Um, uh, Amanda, as it applies to that specifically um, or beyond, have, have you ever uh, thought about or had to engage the conversation of applying value and taking away value based on who's presenting it? Well, it's this whole separating the art from the artist conversation, right? Yeah. Um, and I think what's interesting is something that you said just in the introduction to this topic of you asked who gets to sit on this pedestal. And maybe the problem is that we have a pedestal that we're putting people on. And I think that's where we get into issues where we have these, these stars who are too great to fail. And then we find out that they're doing horrible things and they're terrible people. Side note, I just saw that James Levine has been engaged to conduct in Italy in 2021. And it's like, how have we not canceled this dude? Speaking of cancel culture, that's someone who deserves to be canceled. And, and of course, he's conducting Damnation of Faust, which is just like chef's kiss, like yeah. ironic. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I think with classical music, it's really interesting because it can either be something that deeply humanizes someone as a performer, like, oh, they're this, they're this sensitive person, they're this artist, or it can be something that lifts people up onto this pedestal, onto this untouchable, transcendent astral plane of existence. And so I, I think it's also interesting how that changes depending on what angle people are coming at it from. So for someone like Farrakhan, it's then has, I think maybe this like humanizing effect. Right. Um, but then for performers who people who are coming from that classical background, then it tends to have this elevating effect sometimes. So it's just interesting how through the lens of classical music, depending on what perspective people are coming from, it, it changes. 
And one of the other conversations uh, that I have, I've had to engage uh, since discovering for myself uh, this performance uh, is the conversation of uh, musical excellence. So, you know, we've, we've gotten to this stage um, in, in so-called classical music uh, to where if something is not uh, studio uh, quality, perfect, whatever perfect means, even if in live performance, it's up for critique. But again, only for certain people. If you go back and look at uh, some of the uh, performances of Leonard Bernstein, especially the performances of his of the piano concertos where he's leading from the piano. You know, there are plenty of uh, missed notes and, and smear bars, um, which is fine as far as I'm concerned, but we don't allow um, that same energy or at least people I've been engaged with haven't allowed that same energy for this Farrakhan performance. You know, the, the first things that they point out, if it's not how evil of a person uh, he is allegedly, is how it's not really a professional quality uh, performance. How, how, how have you engaged um, that conversation, the idea of a quality being attached not to a piece of music, but to a specific performance of a piece of music? This is something that I'm hoping will be a positive outcome of the pandemic and of our current situation, because people are still performing. People are still putting music out, whether it's you know through live stream or Zoom, or um, people are finding new platforms for performance, and they're very imperfect. But I hope that in a, some way, it can help us lower that perfection standard. And I hope that it can also help us engage in a more accessible way. I mean, what what would it mean if we lowered our standards in terms of fidelity for things like college pre-screening recordings? How would that help more people be able to access this music and our education systems that we have in place? And if we're if not if we're not requiring that things be studio level perfect in terms of recordings, then how much more accessible does that make it for people to get their music out there and for people to engage with it? So this has been something that I've actually been thinking about a lot over the past couple of months and just seeing the art that's coming out. And I just not not that you know there are going to be many positive outcomes of the pandemic, but I hope that maybe having to rethink the way that we make and share our art. Um, maybe that's something that we'll reconsider. Scott, do you feel like we uh, sort of reinforce that reality um, in our jobs of presenting classical recordings on the radio? I mean, it, we, yeah, have these, we have these studio uh, created things that, you know, don't really have many errors, whatever an error is. Put a pin in that because I want to go back to something that Amanda was talking about as far as, uh, rating the recording. Like you said, if they're not bashing on Farrakhan as a person, then they're saying, well, his technique is shit. Right. You know, <laughs> one of those two, right? So then they need to be ready to, to smear that across every performance, even the ones that they do like from people, performers that they like that are problematic, you know? Um, so uh, I don't know if, I don't think that Mendelssohn was problematic, was he? I mean, he was a family man, right? He didn't, <laughs> um, we haven't dug through his tweets enough yet. All right. So that's a good, that, that, that's a good point. Um, but I think that people need to be ready to apply that rule across all the performances then, even the problematic uh, ones of people that they like. And as far as what we do on the air, I think that 
um, it's really hard for a live performance to get pulled off well in a recording because so much of it depends on the electricity in the hall, doesn't it? And if you're not experiencing that same electricity, then maybe you would prefer a studio recording to a live one. Is that what you were getting at? I suppose so. But also, you know, a, a person who, you know, is used to listening to, you know, uh, classical music on the radio and then finally goes to that concert and uh, hears their favorite piece of music, you know, with a wrong note in the in the flute solo, something you'd never be accused of Amanda. But, oh, no, you know. <laughs> never. But actually, yeah, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I, I just think it's uh, it's really interesting how, you know, uh, this to me seems like a unique problem, uh, one of the many unique problems of the canon, you know, having these uh, pieces of music that have become so played, maybe even overplayed and so familiar that we pick apart every little measure and, and, and every little phrase. Um, Amanda, am I right in, in saying that that seems to be more of a problem with the canon or is this an issue that comes uh, in the world of new music as well? No, I think you're right. I think it's mostly a problem with the canon. And I think that's why people who gravitate toward new music are so drawn to it because there isn't that same intense scrutiny and standard for perfection. And then of course you have the critics who say, oh, well, with contemporary music, who would know if you played a wrong note because it all sounds like wrong notes or whatever. Um, <laughs> and I Ooh. think that's kind of missing the point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, a lot of contemporary music is more textural. It's more gestural. It's not about this um, technique perfection in the conservatory way that we conceive of it. I mean, that's not to say that it is not technically challenging. I think that it is some of the most technically challenging music out there. What some of these really practiced contemporary performers are able to do, the ones that specialize in new music, it's incredible. It's it's mind-blowing. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that is more of a problem with the canonical rep just because we have this built up expectation where with new music, it's, it's more about the discovery. It's more about just being in this moment. It's more about artists just, just trying to share something. I think it, it makes it easier to connect on more of a human level too, um, because you're engaging with a living artist. Right, right. But what about uh, some of the uh, pieces of new music or at least newer music that are becoming um, sort of a, a regular part of the conversation? I think the last time uh, the three of us spoke, we talked a little bit about uh, Change by Judd Greenstein. I mean, that's a, that, that's a tune that, you know, folks are, are, are beginning to uh, be used to, but can't a piece of music like that even fall victim to, oh, wait, uh, that note was missed or the electric guitar didn't do this or, you know, it, can that not apply? No, it can. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, the more, of course, we want new music to have repeat performances. Of course, we want it to be recorded. Of course, we want it to attain some level of canon, but we're so critical of the canon that how do we um, make sure that these new pieces that we're putting forth don't then end up in this same kind of eye-rolling canon situation that we're talking about right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to sort of tie, you know, the conversation we're having about Farrakhan and what that means to uh, new music and specifically I Care If You Listen, you know, uh, as we move forward, I, I mentioned digging through uh, Mendelssohn's tweets. Well, you know, for those of us who are <laughs> alive, you know, that is very much a thing. And more and more musicians are uh, getting called out for problematic statements and, and, and actions that um, have been seen as inequitable. Um, 
is is this a conversation uh, that you've had to actively um, engage when it uh, comes to some of the content that I care if you listen um, has produced? And if not, what would be your approach um, moving forward? Let let's say that you know this. Uh, phenomenal essay comes out on your website and a week later you find out that this person said whatever, you know, what, what, what would be the, 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 the way to move forward? This has actually happened not in terms of any of the people producing content on my site, but people that we've covered on the site. So artists that we're choosing to feature. Um, and I did actually have someone get in touch with me recently um, to say that one of the artists that we had been covering, um, you know, she had been like in an abusive relationship with him. And she asked me like, you know, I I would like it if you don't cover this person anymore. And, um, you know, I I agreed to not cover this artist anymore because there are just so many people doing good work. There are so many people who don't have these deeply problematic things in their past that we don't need to be wasting our time on the people who, who do. Um, so, I mean, it was definitely a tough conversation and I was really glad that this person brought it to my attention. Um, I guess the thing that's hardest is that, um, you just never know. And so it takes someone being brave enough to kind of get in touch with you and speak up on something like that to really know what you're dealing with. And I think it just has to be dealt with on a very personal and and case-by-case basis. The thing that's tough is this, we've already referenced this, but this sort of call-out culture that we see um, where I think it's helpful to call things out, but if you want actual change to happen, then sometimes it takes just reaching out to someone personally um, instead of, I mean, for, for larger institutions, yeah, sure. Drag them on Twitter, looking at you, <laughs> Metropolitan Opera. Um, oh, shots fired. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I think things get accomplished much easier if you're able to just kind of connect to someone who will really listen and who is in a position to actually do something about it. Yeah. And, and and that actually, you know, leads me to one of the final questions I have for you. You know, what what is the measure um, of that when we can't personally uh, reach out? You know, the, the example that folks always bring up is Wagner, you know, but there there are so many other examples. In your opinion, what how do you measure it? What is the line in the sand between, well, this can get a pass and no, this needs to be locked up into the vault? I mean, do we really need Wagner? <laughs> but really though, yeah, sure. like, do we really need Wagner? And if it's hurting people, then, I mean, it doesn't matter what level of greatness we try to put Wagner on. If, if it's something that's perpetuating, something that's hurting people, then, then why are we doing it? Yeah, I mean that's always the point I make uh, concerning Wagner and 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 just the canon in general. Maybe not even necessarily the problematic corners of it. There's so much more 
um, to be discovered. But, you know, uh, again, I, I don't think anything um, is really black and white because as hurtful as performances uh, like Farrakhan's and Mendelssohn could be for, for many people, you know, for others, it's um, empowering. You know, again, that did mark the beginning of uh, a classical music institution that is focused on the celebration of, of black uh, musicians and black music creators. So, um, yeah, I, I guess the, the conversation uh, continues. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we haven't quite uh, reached the end of it. Maybe we never will. And I think the most important thing is that it's an ongoing conversation and that we just keep talking about it and we keep evaluating it. And we talk about it with people who are outside of our usual circles because, you know, we might have our minds made up when we talk to the people that we're used to talking to every day. But if we reach outside of our regular communities, then we might find that people are having different conversations elsewhere. So I think it's important that we just keep talking about it. And reaching outside of, uh, you know, your regular communities is something that I say, I care if you listen, has uh, done a phenomenal job of. Oh, uh, thank uh, you. Uh, uh, since, since I've been uh, familiar and I'm sure uh, beyond my purview. Uh, what's, what, what's, what, what's next for I care if you listen? I mean, are there any uh, big moves ahead? We do have um, something that we're working toward. Can't really say uh, anything about oh, okay, it yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the main thing for us is just figuring out that next big step, figuring out how to make this something that's sustainable. It started as one person's personal blog and has grown into something that I think is a, a resource that a lot of people turn to and is serving a purpose that not a lot of other publications are serving, especially with our focus, not only on contemporary music, but also with marginalized artists. So um, yeah, we're just trying to figure out how we can go from our current volunteer structure to something that's going to bring us long-term stability. Well, when, you, uh, when you're ready to uh, let the secret out, let me know, because we're looking at the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, can, uh, how, how can folks uh, uh, check out I Care If You Listen? Icareifyoulisten.com. Uh, we're also uh, active on Facebook and Twitter. And the people who curate our social media, they are amazing. Natalie Kalma and Julia Kuhlman, they do such a great job of not only putting out our content, but also pulling in content from other resources in the new music scene. So follow us on social and uh, icareifyoulisten.com. So I thought it was really important to take this conversation into that moment, into the concert hall where the Gateways Music Festival began and where uh, Louis Farrakhan, you know, gave this um, this historic uh, concert over in North Carolina. So Caroline Jones uh, was there. She was the uh, the uh, personnel manager and also one of the violists. And uh, we'll, where we'll jump into my conversation with her is where she starts talking about um, how she became friends with the founder of the Gateways Music Festival and what happened next. Yes, and in, and you know I'm I'm a historian of this because I'm one of the original Gatewayians, however you would yeah. like to call it. Um, uh, Armenta, of course, is Armenta Adams Hummings Dumasani, Dumasani, excuse me. Um, at the time, she was Mrs. Hummings. Um, I was at uh, North Carolina School of the Arts. It was before they were University of North Carolina School School of the Arts, and her son Amadi. Uh, was a violist at School of the Arts. I'm a violist, so we were all in the viola family mm -hmm. and uh, master classes, orchestra, the whole nine yards. So that's how we all met. Then I met his mom, and she became the campus mom. Okay. After, you know, looking after us, words and things of that nature. And um, I used to babysit her sons, the younger sons, 
when she would when she decided to start going back into practicing and she would practice and they would hang out with me in the dorm. So uh, we built a camaraderie. We were family. We were really close. So um, after graduation and years later, we still stayed in touch. And she called me one day and said, I have this initiative that I would like to do. I really would like your help with it. At the time, I was working at the Greensboro uh, Symphony Orchestra. Um, and I was the uh, executive assistant and um, later personnel manager. So I was working with music. You know, I was just accustomed. And, and I was an admin as well. I worked in a law office prior to that and just just administrative skills. So she said, I need your help with some things that I just don't do. And I was like, no problem. So she said, I'm going to start an orchestra and it's going to be all black. And I want it to be in North Carolina because North Carolina doesn't have anything like that. And North Carolina needs something like that. Mm. And we're going to call it Gateways Music Festival. Are, are you in? I said, sign me up. And so I, we started from there. I helped her with, um, she told me persons to invite. I typed up letters. And, you know, back then we were typing on the typewriter <laughs> and writing a lot of notes and calling people long distance. And she was shaking bushes and trees and, and blood from a turnip and you name it to get the funding for this. So I was there at the very beginning of Gateway's Music Festival. And it was exciting um, when it finally came to that point. People started flying in and, and it just blew my mind to see so many persons of my color. Yeah. I was just, I, and I cried a lot of, a lot of times I just had to turn and cry because I was just so excited to be at this venture. And um, that, I mean, they came in and they came to do serious work. She called in favors of artists from all over. And, you know, unbeknownst to me that uh, our famous artist was going to be playing at the end of the week because we were at School of the Arts mm -hmm. and uh, doing chamber concerts and, and all various things. And uh, she had children come up from the Muhammad School. We had kids playing from Atlanta, South Carolina, people flying down from New York, Texas. I was just thrilled to see everyone of our color. So um, that's where it started. And we worked very hard. Yeah. Um, and, and things were going great um, at the School of the Arts and performing and playing. Uh, Abu Dodge and Pratt was there. I mean, we, we just, it was, we had um, grand pianos all over the stages and the people at School of the Arts were like, wow. Oh my goodness. Their mouths were open the entire time. And I was like, yeah, right. This is my school. I went to school here. How you like me now? So uh, it, it was really a great experience. And then of course the, the, uh, cherry on the Sunday was to have um, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan perform the Middleton Concerto with the Gateway Symphony Orchestra in our final concert. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, when I came across uh, the video of, of Minister Farrakhan playing that solo piece, first and foremost, I was just blown away. I, I had no idea um, that he played the violin. And, and, and since um, seeing that video, I mean, I have spent every spare moment I, I have reading everything I can, watching every interview, uh, watching the um, For the Love of Music uh, documentary. Um, and, and one of the things I learned, and I want to make sure I understand this correctly, the Gateway's performance was actually, uh, it actually took place before the performance um, in Chicago that, that made it on tape. Is that correct? 
That is correct. We were kind of the, I guess you could say for lack of a better term, the guinea pig to let's sure. see how this goes. Sure. So we, we were like uh, uh, the, the maiden voyage when he decided after, what, uh, over 30 plus years, yeah. I'm going to pick the violin back up. And when he picked it back up and then came to Winston-Salem, and of course, Winston-Salem's his roots. Mm-hmm. He went to school in Winston-Salem. Oh, you wow. know? And so coming back to North Carolina after all of these years, and of course, uh, from what I'm understanding from history, he really did enjoy playing violin. He enjoyed the classical music, but upon joining the nation, he had to make a choice. Right. Music or serve the nation. So he chose nation. But later on, um, I'm, I'm just assuming and thinking that maybe some said, oh, wow, you used to play. Why aren't you playing now? Or maybe you should do this again. And music is a bridge. Music is a communication uh, uh, tool. And that's exactly how he came with it, to communicate through music. And uh, it was phenomenal. He did a great job. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of people were like, I had no idea. I didn't know. But... Um, and I was excited, but on the other side, because I was personnel manager of Gateways, I had to think. I had to be on point because, of course, with that came greater responsibility. Right. And I had to be on top of a lot of things, the security, working with the brothers of the nation. Working the the with fruits of Islam. At, oh, it was wonderful. Yeah. I, oh, <laughs> sister. I never had so many people call me sister. Thank you, sister. Good morning, sister. Good afternoon, sister. Sister, may I interrupt you for a moment? We need to go over a developing detail. Mm. Sister, here is our list. Can you give me your list of the musicians? Can you tell me who to allow back at this door? Sister, we're going to have someone here. Sister, we're going to be here, but we won't be in your way. Do what you need to do. You know, and I'm like, wow. They are a well-oiled machine. I actually took notes from them. Yeah. <laughs> was, yes. he, uh, was the minister um, as controversial then as he seems to be these days? Well, politically, he was highly controversial because that was the height of his popularity. Right. His speaking, his marching, his, uh, um, you know, his speaking and having rallies, people were protesting, people were outside protesting in various places. Uh, they were not fond of him at all uh, because of his views on um, Caucasian persons. Um, and um, they said he was anti-Semitist, he was uh, against homo- homosexuality, he was against this, he was against that. The, the white man was the blue-eyed devil. Mm-hmm. He's the devil and there's nothing good in him. And we as a people uh, need to rise up and handle things. So it's a, it, it was a radical time. So there was a lot of unrest. However, when it came to the decisions of performing, even with performing, as I mentioned, the Gateways Music Festival was hosted at North Carolina School of the Arts. They were glad to have us. Mm-hmm. There was funding in place. Everything was good to go. And But when they found out that um, he was our featured artist, they pulled out. They said, we can't host him at our school because um, he's controversial. And mm-hmm. it'll look like we support him 
And we're not going to do that. And Mr. Tummings was like, well, he's an artist. He's coming as an artist. They said, we don't know that. And when you are an all-Black organization asking seriously an all-white organization for over $20,000 in funding, location, allowing us to use millions of dollars worth of your equipment, you've got to go with the flow. Uh, but a lot of the organizations pulled out, I think, other than the Delta Arts, they stayed in and said, we'll support you. And um, we had a, a last minute saving grace of one of the journalists who owned the Winston-Salem paper who uh, wrote a check to make things happen wow. anyway. Anyway, and um, his name was Mr. Mr. Fowler. And um, then I don't know how this transpired, but uh, new word got out, of course, that he was coming. Word got out that School of the Arts turned him down. Um, and someone was able to work things out where we had it at Reynolds High School in Reynolds Auditorium. And Reynolds Auditorium is huge. It was much larger than Crawford Hall at School of the Arts. And so um, they said, we'll have it there. And so that's what we did. We changed. That's why I say there were so many updates and in working with the Fruits of Islam and, and security and things. And with that changing... Um, I was a personnel manager. I was a violist. I was playing. I was making certain that music was handed out. We didn't have a library in there. We just, you know, yeah. handed out music and, and worked with the librarian from School of the Arts. Um, Maestro Michael Morgan, you know, he's giving me notes and he's telling me, put this person here, sit here. So I was running around in circles, per se, um, making sure that all of these things happen and being briefed. And uh, just being told, listen, there, someone may come with a controversial statement. Someone may come to you with this or someone may come to you with that. You just stay focused with the task on hand. I must say it went well. It, it went well to the point that, like, you know how you have a wedding and then the bride comes out married and happy. But sure. she has no idea that you were in a car wreck, saved somebody from a heart attack before you got there. <laughs> right, right, right. So uh, we dealt with that and, and it was handled. So... Uh, fortunately, it, the concert was there. It was well attended, um, contrary to maybe some of the articles, because the articles, although it's media, the articles, in my opinion, sounded pro-white. Hmm. It made it sound more like, you know, well, he's political. He's, you know, we're, we're, you know, he's, he's, he's this, he's this, and and so therefore, the organization said we can't have him, and you know, quite frankly, we do understand, and then after his performance, we were pleasantly surprised. Wow. You know, and, and then even mentioning his men, his, his security and how they were, their presence was known by their suits and bow ties. I mean, they were very descriptive of that. And I'm like, look, they're just the brothers. Yeah. And they're, and, and they're taken care of, but they took care of everyone. And I think that they were just very surprised that you would have that many persons. And of course, uh, the nation showed up, yeah. you know, but my family was there. My mother was there. My father, you know, my, 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 my stepmother, my stepfather. I mean, my whole, my bonus family, everyone was there for this event. So, um, he did say, even in the rehearsals, when he walked on stage, it, you could hear a pin drop and he turned around and he said, I'm nervous. And everyone said, <laughs> you know, <it's> just, <laughs> huh. He said, I'm nervous. He said, I want to say this before we start. He said, um, when I am Minister Farrakhan, I'm Minister Farrakhan. He said, but today I'm a musician, just like you. 
So let's relax and let's make music. And then the second wave of shoulders went down. And then, of course, my struggle was like, you know, so from there we went. And after, I think, striking a few notes and then after playing through the Mendelssohn and rehearsals, then everyone was excited. Everyone was happy. All of these other things didn't even matter. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you've spoken to, you know, what, what they say, which is, again, why I have, you know, spent so much time doing my own research. I've done everything to watching his appearances on Donahue, his yeah. BT um, interviews, the things he's written, and, and including yeah. the concert in Chicago that followed the concert um, in, in North Carolina. And in that, in that Chicago concert, you know, I didn't see someone who was um, splitting people apart or trying to be divisive. You know, in, in Chicago, it seemed, uh, well, it more than just seemed like what I saw was him uh, trying to build that bridge between communities. I mean, considering the fact that he played a piece of music by Mendelssohn, you know, the, the woman who coached him and taught him to prepare him for that moment was, um, was a Jewish woman. Yes, exactly. So much. What, what was that an outward? Um, what was there an outward show of unity at the uh, North Carolina concert? There was an outward show of unity, absolutely. And I think even more so once. Well, it was a better outward show after we had rehearsal with him. Okay. Because of course, like I mentioned, the festival was already going on. Performances started as early as Wednesday. You know, private home things and. Thursday, Friday, etc. But then by the time the concert came, the big concert, um, once we had that rehearsal and the musicians were able to gel with him, then we became a unified force together. That it would not matter what outside forces would say or do. Everyone was comfortable and able to relax. Because if you could imagine how many persons came to me or were calling me um, you know, and of course there weren't cell phones and then they called right. me blowing up my phone. Um, I hear that he's, is he actually coming? Oh my goodness. And I, I don't recall if any musicians uh, stepped out and said, I can't do this or I won't support this. I, I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember anyone saying they, they wouldn't do it. Uh, I think everyone was just kind of Ner nervous, anxious, excited, wondering. But like I said, once he made that statement, when I'm on stage, I'm a musician. When he said, I'm nervous, let's make music. And then Maestro Morgan, of course, conducted us. It, like After that struck of the first note, then we really became a unified force. We were one. We were musicians of color making beautiful music. So when it was time for the performance, of course, the place was packed. Security was there. They were handling things. Uh, I was peeping from behind the curtain, you know, like, mm -hmm. ooh, you know. And, and, but it was a beautiful sight because when you looked to the left, all of Nation was sitting there. The women, the men, they were dawned. They were clean. But <laughs> it was a beautiful sight. And then in the middle, you had your benefactors and you, your mixed and, you know, and, and so forth. So... But just to see that presence. But uh, if if you were a nervous person and knee jerk, you would say, "Oh my gosh, they're here. I'm nervous. I, should I stay or, or what have you?" We were backstage. Security was standing with me as every musician walked through the door. Every musician. 
they knew and they were like sister this and I had to tell them who could come who who no I don't know them I don't you know or if someone came to the backstage and asked for me and then I could tell them who could come otherwise everyone else had to go all the way around front and go through that security even with that there were no incidents there was nothing and then when we played when we performed there was uh, there was not a dry eye, and everyone was standing. It was a standing ovation, and it was like wow. And then the media was like, "Oh my goodness, wow!" And you know, and they spoke of it, and but of course they still had to bring in that part. But mm. it was it, it was great, and it was also a catalyst for gateways because um, you know Mrs. Hummings was was struggling to find funding. But after that success, they were like, oh, we're down. When's the next one? When are we going to do this? She says, oh, next year, because it's going to be annual. Yeah. And we need something like this down south because we don't have it. And it stayed until, of course, she went to uh, Rochester and then they had conversations. But we, we did the best that we could with what we had. But that was the catalyst. That was the spark. And wow. after that, it was uh, Farrakhan, the musician, not the, the not the political, you know, and it doesn't matter what he may have said the next day. He could have been on stage playing and the next day he may have said something about white persons or he may right. have said something about his beliefs or what the nation believes. And, uh, you know, perhaps. But on that day, he was the musician. Um, I have a I still have that picture. Um we were backstage and he's laughing. His mouth is wide open. He's laughing. And I'm standing behind, beside him, just grinning, just cheesing. Yeah. And of course, you know, his men are around him, but we were backstage taking pictures with him. People were getting autographs. People were shaking his hand. It wasn't this, you know, you can't cook. He was gracious. He welcomed everyone. Oh wow! And he and he talked about. It. He said, "I was so nervous, y'all. Could y'all tell I was nervous?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, I couldn't tell." You know, I was like, "I was nervous," you know. And he says, "Well, I'm glad that's over." And we just laughed. He was just a musician, and he says, "Well, you know, I'm thinking about there may have been a couple of notes that I may have missed." Or I said, "Well, that happens. We miss them too." <laughs> I said, but I said, isn't that what musicians do? And he was like, yeah, that's what musicians do. So it was one of those. And he, he talked to us. He spent time with us. It wasn't like he had to play and then they rushed him off. They gave him a, an opportunity to talk to persons, benefactors, persons who were very happy about it. And then when they finished, they whisked him off and he was gone and we were all grinning and happy and the musicians got paid and yeah we went home you know what what's what's yeah. most just impactful to me you know beyond um his playing and, and being a catalyst for the gateways music festival is the fact that um the audience was so diverse you know and, and so many institutions talk about diversifying the audience these days but not like that right i mean it, it just seems interesting that the means of making that diverse um that diverse audience that diverse orchestral experience is one that folks just kind of want to stay away from in action but they're dedicated to in word absolutely and it really was a diverse, I mean, I, I mean, just from what I remember, my gosh, there was salt and pepper everywhere. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I'm just saying salt and pepper everywhere. And it wasn't, and as I mentioned, of course the nation was there and they were sitting together, but it wasn't even segregation in a sense. They know to sit together. Right. They represent as a unit. So they sit together. But as I stated in the center and orchestra left, it was just a myriad. And it was, I mean, there, there was Asian there, black, yeah. white, Indian, I mean, just it's Jewish. Everyone. I understand. Children, yeah, children were there. Little children, teenagers. I mean, the elderly people, deep pockets and not so. So you even had your economic brackets there. So you had your six figures, and you had the people who gave money, and, and the symphony, the Winston Symphony people, and you know of all of those natures. And then you had just regular persons. It was it was just wonderful. I'm I'm just so grateful for the vision that Armenta had. That's just that's a Moses vision. I'm sorry. I just <laughs> my God. And I'm just grateful that I could be Joshua and Caleb in the midst of that. Sure. It, it was wonderful. But yes, the diverse the diversity and the fact that she was beating bushes, she was knocking on doors. She came to our community as well and asked for funding. And some of the community assisted. Some community, and, and the same as other communities, well, you know what, uh, jump off the first one, let us know how it goes, maybe we'll help you next year. You know, mm-hmm. some people, they look at that and like, well, I don't know. But once that concert, once she pulled, she said, oh, I'm going to pull it off. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but it's going to be done. And she did. And it was just one of those things where it's like, oh, my God, she really did it. Yeah, She did it. I pulled my money out because I'm not supporting Farrakhan and she did it anyway. So there's just so many nuggets in this, so many nuggets in this. Um, uh, but, but the diversity was phenomenal. And I, and it's sad to say it was more diverse then than it is now. Right. Right. Yeah. I play in the symphony and my two parents are the two parents that are there. And maybe two or three other parents. I mean, we we're diversing more with mm-hmm. Greensboro Symphony. We are, and and I'm a I pushed for that. Um, however, the 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 standard, the norm is classical musicians. We don't look for us in the audience. Right. Um, you know, as I've learned, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, the minister, you know, put down the violin for so many years to focus on his faith and 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 being a thinker. Um, in your opinion, what does it mean? for um, the minister to have come back to music after all of those years. I mean, it, it, it seems like to me that, you know, his bond with music was just that strong. Absolutely. And I think I would like to liken it to, it's like riding a bike. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like riding a bike. <laughs> you know, he, I, I don't know who spoke to him. I don't, I don't know if he was in prayer time or I don't know if someone walked up to him and, and maybe knew something of his past, saw pictures. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know if he mentioned, hey, I used to play violin. And they were like, well, do you still play it? Can you play it now? I, I don't know that story, but I'm glad it happened. I'm glad that light bulb went off and that he picked it up and decided I'm going to do this. And I would like to liken it to, hey, I still got the juice. Let's do it. You know, (laughs) not just let's pick up the violin and dust it off, but let's go on tour and play a concerto, okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's just, I haven't played in all of these years. I'm going to start practicing. I think I'm going to play a concerto with an orchestra, an all-black one at that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But before we- Who does that? 
I know, I know. Uh, you know, but, but before we uh, wrap up here, um, yeah. you, you were a part of sort of the, um, the, the Facebook storm that came when I uh, posted the video of his uh, Chicago performance. And something that I noticed was that you had um, black folks who really focused on his musicianship and the way that um, he leads and the way he wants uh, liberation for black folks. And then you had non-black people who um, just felt an obligation to foreground and focus on his more uh, controversial side. I mean, from, from your perspective, is uh, the minister's lasting impact uh, rooted in race? Does, does it draw that, that race line when it comes to folks who appreciate him and folks who uh, can't not call foul on him every time they see him or hear his name? I think that it causes a problem because people don't want to understand. Mm. They just want to go by what they knew or, or, or what they've heard. They go what they've heard, what they what they may know or knew. I say past term uh, tense knew or what they've heard, and then what they really don't know. Mm. And my and what bothered me about that post when that person so graciously entered in and uh, said, "Well." I would never play a concert with him. I don't care if we would get paid. I He's an anti-Semitist. He's anti-this. He's anti-that. His thoughts, his beliefs, they're destructive. And I was reading this. And of course, you saw the, 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 the um, one of the persons who was there, also Kim, who was like, it was my first time playing. I was excited. And they yeah. even came for her. Like, I can't believe you didn't. I was like, oh, you're going to come for my girl? I'm not going to have it. <laughs> no, you're, not you're not coming for my girl and you're not coming for my people because I hired her to play this concert, you know? Yeah. And that's why I was very brief in entering the door. See, my thing is I'm going to let you open the door. If you open the door and invite me in, if I cut you, that's your fault. Yeah. Me in. <laughs> so she opened the door and I just, and you know, I believe I said um, uh, when he's on stage, you know, when he's on stage, he's a musician, you know, when he's in the pulpit, he's minister. And then I said, his words, period. Because that's what he said. Right. She just kept going. Nah, 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 nah. So that's why I was like, you know what? Let me pull up a couple of articles about white conductors, white music that black people play. And when I pulled that up, there was nothing else to be said. And then everybody else was like, bravo. I'm glad you said what you said. I mean, I try not to go there per se. I don't want to argue with anyone, especially on social media. Mm -hmm. And once you put it out there, it's there. But with the climate of how things are happening now and the fact that I grew up in this climate, I am one of the children who was able to go to a segregated school. But when I was born, uh, I mean, I I was in integrated school, excuse me. But when I was born, there was still segregation. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got to first grade, second grade, by the time I think got to third grade, they were integrating schools. You know, my dad was like, well, do you want to go to an integrated school? And I was like, what's that? He said, well, that's where black kids and white kids go to school together. Because I went to an all black elementary school. Sure. First two grades. And so I was like, sure, let's do it. Because our family was very diverse. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had very bright. We have blue eyes in our family. We had, you know. Uh, we have a little bit of everything. We're a melting pot. So I was accustomed to seeing this. So it didn't bother me at all. But what was interesting is even when I was at the black school, all of my teachers were white. Mm. 
But I, I think I had one black teacher, maybe two in all of my years. But um, getting back to the point, just being in a segregated point, I was more open for it. But when she made that comment, I was just like, it just took me back to, I remember when, I remember how, and I know how our forefathers paved the way for us mm -hmm. to have it better, to have a great education, a quality education, quality way of life. And now with the climate of things going on, I had to say something and I had to let her know, no, you're just not going to come in here because of your thoughts. And, and well, he's just so violent. He's so, how do you know? Have you been there? Has he ever laid hands on you? Mm -hmm. Has someone from nation touched you? Has someone from fruit of Islam called you? No, you just saying what you want to say. And we just had to shut that down. Let her know. Don't, don't you know, it's not a matter of defending him it's the, the defending the musicality and understanding, you know, don't talk about what you don't know. Yeah. Plain yeah. and simple. Just leave it alone. And even, and I can say in the years of my seeing him reading the final call, I've, I've read the final call. I've had a bean pie. I'm fine with that. <laughs> and he calls me sister. Yeah. Nobody else. Everybody, is, you know, call me sister. Don't call me girl. Yeah. Or something worse, you know. <laughs> I've been called that too, and I was playing in a symphony when it happened. Wow. Oh, Jesus, Lord. Woo, I'm right there. I'm back. I'm back. So uh, I'm just I'm just saying that's part of it. But um, you know, just had to let her know that that and then that's when we were talking about him. I could talk about it because I knew I met him. I talked with the man, broke bread with the man, made music with the man worked with his organization so I could speak on what I knew. That's why I just tell her politely, be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for folks who want to uh, reach out to you, learn more about your, what, what you're doing, uh, if there's something you want to plug, in, in, anything you want to throw out. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I mean, um, I mean, if you, if you want to hit me up, yeah, I'm on Facebook. Um, Caroline Jones, Caroline Diva is as Diva does. Amen. I'm on Instagram, <laughs> Caroline Diva is as Diva does. And you can reach me there, inbox me, um, if you want to talk some more about those things or talk about diverse initiatives, because a lot of the orchestras are doing that. I am on a diversity team with our orchestra. Um, I said, you can't have a diversity team if you don't have someone who's in the orchestra who's Black that can tell you some things. Mm -hmm. So I've been in Greensboro Symphony 36 years now. I think I could have a voice. I'm grateful that I'm at this point and at this time where I can have a voice to say some things. Um, to, to, to spread knowledge, spread love, whatever I can do. Thank you to Caroline Jones for joining me to uh, explore a bit of the uh, beginnings of the Gateways Music Festival and how that involved the Honorable Louis Farrakhan. And a huge thank you and shout out to Amanda Cook from I Care If You Listen for also helping us engage that conversation. So this is movement four, the triloquy. And instead of giving you what we usually give you, I decided to do a quick solo triloquy since uh, this opus of the podcast has already been uh, trill enough. So 
I had to do a lot of soul searching when I decided to theme an episode, an opus of the podcast around uh, the Honorable Louis Farrakhan. I am fully aware, as are, you know, all black people, I would say virtually all black people, we are fully aware of the words that he has said um, that have been misconstrued or, in, in the opinions of many, rightfully um, identified as homophobic, anti-Semitic, and, and everything else you can throw. I'm not here to invalidate that as much as I'm here to make the point that there's so many parts of our own music history, and I mean the history of black folks in, in this country, that flies by the radar because certain people rule the narrative. I'm not here to say that the Honorable Louis Farrakhan uh, is a black blameless man, as much as I'm here to say that we have to begin figuring out how we can tell our own stories. The fact that uh, Louis Farrakhan helped uh, kick off a music festival that I am involved with every year, and this is something that I don't know, um, is reason one million and one why I think it's so important that uh, this podcast really centers and explores those unexplored conversations, those uncomfortable stories, and those things that we just can't count on the white-led institutions to teach us. Did the people who first taught you about the Honorable Louis Farrakhan tell you that he was a violinist, one who studied under a Jewish violin teacher, a woman who said that she could never consider him anti-Semitic? Did the person who taught you about Louis Farrakhan tell you about the work that he's done for countless black communities, or did they just throw some bad words toward him? Yeah? No? Okay. See you next time.